Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today, I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Mr. Mike Clark. Now, Mike has had a long career in television on the camera and production side of things. He also had a 15-year career as a feature writer for the classic sci-fi film and TV magazine, Starlog. During his career, he's had the opportunity to interview most of the original cast members and some of the behind-the-scenes creators of Lost in Space, including Erwin Allen himself. As a result, he's become something of a recognized expert on the classic series, so much so that Mike Clark was featured as the main facilitator on the cast commentaries, special features that are included on the incredible Lost in Space, The Complete Adventures Blu-ray set. Those commentaries are an incredible source of behind-the-scenes knowledge and insight that are truly worth the price of that set alone. Before we speak with him, I want to give a little background info on Mr. Clark. Mike grew up in Florida during the 50s and 60s. He developed a love for many of the classic TV shows from that golden age of television, including Lost in Space. For his 10th birthday, Mike appeared on a kid's show at WTVT Tampa, and that's when he committed to a career in television. By the age of 16, Mike was a volunteer at his local PBS station and rapidly became a valued member of the production crew. In 1972, Mike finally met his goal of working at WTVT. Meanwhile, he graduated with a degree in mass communications from the University of South Florida. Mike spent five happy years working for WTVT, but Hollywood beckoned, and he arrived in Tinseltown about a month before Star Wars premiered at Grauman's Chinese Theater. He initially worked as a video equipment salesman, a freelance video producer-editor, before ultimately being hired by Sony Pictures Entertainment in the production and on-air promotions field, which he did until 2010. Fortunately, at that time, Erwin Allen was also there, so whenever he visited the producer's office, Mike lobbied for a new Lost in Space movie. Mike organized his first Lost in Space fan event, which was held in Anaheim, California in 1985 to celebrate the series' 20th anniversary. Writing articles for Starlog followed, and he eventually met producer Kevin Burns, who asked him to assist in the Lost in Space syndicated specials of the 90s, the 50th anniversary Blu-ray set as well. In addition, Mr. Burns regularly calls on Mike to moderate Lost in Space event celebrity panels, which he did recently at the June 2018 AlienCon convention. 
Today, Mike resides in Southern California running his own video production company, Clark Media Productions. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Lost in Space aficionado and lifelong fan, Mike Clark. Mr. Mike Clark, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It is such an honor to have you on our podcast celebrating Erwin Allen's original Lost in Space. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm in very good company. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it. I want to thank you also for all the tremendous work that you've done, not only as a writer, but sort of a, a researcher, maybe a amateur historian of the show that we all love, Lost in Space. And I've had the chance to look at some of your previous uh, writing, and I really enjoyed it. So it's great to have you on the show. I wanted to start off with kind of the question I ask everybody, and that is, how did you first experience Lost in Space? And could you maybe talk a little bit about what the show represents to you today? Absolutely. I was very lucky to have grown up in the 50s and 60s when things were very exciting. Mm. Uh, just to give you, for instance, when I was born, all television was black and white. There were no satellites in space. Uh, technologically, we were, of course, very primitive, but things rapidly advanced. And uh, with that came a bunch of great television shows that also uh, had very cool aspects like the adventures of Superman. They occasionally worked in scientific plots. Mm. Even, the, even the show Sky King, which was about a man with a, a Cessna 310 airplane who got into adventures, they introduced some sci-fi elements and scientific use. And then there were the Jerry Anderson shows, Supercar, yeah. Fireball XL5. Uh, Fireball XL5 in particular, set in space, really, really turned me on. Mm. And so during that age... Something new and something great was always coming around the corner. The cars sometimes would change radically from one year to the other, and the television shows would get better and better, and they started to introduce color and things like that. And then the space program began in the early 60s, and then we all really got uh, incredibly interested in space and the future. Uh, and we had, of course, lighter shows like The Jetsons. Johnny Quest is kind of uh, a middling adventure, but uh, you know, certainly look to the future. And Irwin Allen's first show, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, was set in the near future, but it was still a future that we recognized. They were driving cars, they mm -hmm. were just doing kind of normal things, which, which I appreciate. Sci-fi that is relatable, like those shows like Voyage or The Outer Limits, where you see people in their homes or driving cars. I, I find that very interesting. Right. Lost in Space was among those shows, I take it, that uh, touched you at an early age. I was enthralled with the promos that CBS ran before Lost in Space premiered in September 1965. I think all the fans out there have seen these promos uh, that just show some clips from the pilot. But what really sold me on Lost in Space was the shot of the Jupiter 2 crashing, coming down past those pinnacles and the oh, smoke. Yeah. From that moment, they had me hooked. Mm. So uh, in September 65, I was living in Orlando, which is only an hour away from Cape Canaveral where the space program was going on. But I would have watched the show anyway because uh, it was an Irwin Allen show. So uh, in the beginning, the first episode, The Reluctant Stowaway, just knocked me uh, for a loop. I was 13 years old, which is the perfect age for watching that kind of show. Mm. And, and I knew the actors from previous shows, Guy Williams and June Lockhart, 
uh, Angela Cartwright were very familiar to me. Uh, Billy Mooney, a little less so, but I had seen him in a number of other programs. And uh, Dr. Smith, Jonathan Harris, had just come off the Bill Dana show. So I was aware of him, although I thought of him as a funny person, not a villain. Of course, he turned Dr. Smith into a funny person again. So, <laughs> so when that first show aired, uh, I was very excited and I enjoyed it. And here's one of the big differences between then and now. There were only three networks at the time, and CBS, NBC, and ABC. And so you were guaranteed viewership in the multi-millions. For instance, today, if, if CBS got uh, three or four million people watching on a night, they'd be out of their minds. Oh, we got a hit on our hands. Back then, because there were only three networks, uh, CBS would get ratings of 20, 25, 30 million people wow. for Lost in Space. So it's a very common experience. So the next day at school, you would find a lot of other people who would watch that same episode. And you were able to talk and share notes and just say, hey, wasn't that great when the robot, you know, tore up the astrogator? And it was a very common experience that I don't think is available anymore. So I was, uh, I was hooked on the show from the beginning. The first five or six episodes were terrific. Then they were on the planet, and uh, a lot of the times the plot lines involved just people visiting, aliens, whatever. And it wasn't quite as interesting, but I stuck with it. And when it went color, I said, I happened to fortunately have a color set. My dad had bought one uh, about the year before. So I was able to watch the second season in color. It uh, had variable quality, but I stuck with it through good and bad because... The initial, the basic concept of the show was great. The production was great. The actors were really good. The scripts, eh, not so, but uh, the actors would carry it. And right. uh, the special effects that they had with the Jupiter 2 taking off and landing and the explosions, uh, and particularly in year three, uh, I all found it uh, very interesting. By year three, I was in high school. But I was still sticking with the show despite the occasional silliness. So I was a tried and true fan from beginning to end. That's great. And remain so to this day, which is uh, to our benefit, because you've gotten the opportunity over the course of your career. And, and your career, your professional life is in the TV production side of things. But the Lost in Space, the, the love of that show remains to this day. And it's opened up some interesting opportunities for you. For example, to, you had a career as a feature writer for Starlog magazine. And a lot of uh, younger people might not have heard of Starlog. I can't remember exactly when that magazine stopped publishing. I'm a little bit younger than you, but I grew up a fan of science fiction, film, and TV. Starlog was a great magazine. I probably read all your articles at one time before, but I happened to go onto a web archive that all of the Starlog issues are there. And I read some of your articles on Lost in Space, and they're fascinating. And that must have been a great experience for you, getting to interview or do feature stories on the characters for a show you really like. One of the advantages of moving from Florida, where I lived in the Tampa Bay area, out to here, was having the opportunity to meet the people whose names I actually saw on the credits, because I was always a credit watcher, even as a child, mm. and I knew, knew well the name of Irwin Allen and the directors and everybody else. So when I got out here, I, I figured I'd bump into a few of them, but here's what happened. I met this fellow named Bill Cotter, and uh, I was introduced to him because my friend said, you know, Bill likes Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, too. Why don't you talk to him? So we became fast friends, and Bill said, you know, I'd like to write an article about Voyage for this magazine called Starlog. And uh, I said, well, how do you do that? I don't know anybody there. And he says, well, let me call him up. And so he called him up. I'm not sure who he talked to, but we got the assignment to write an episode guide and a story about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And this was 1979, so this is quite a while ago. Wow. 
And so uh, as novice writers, we determined, well, we have to interview Irwin Allen. So uh, <laughs> we, we bravely called over to his office at Warner Brothers, and uh, we were able to set up an interview with Irwin Allen. Oh, man. This is, you know, you shouldn't start off your writing career with with the top, <laughs> you, should, you should start a little lower and work your way up. But you know, we didn't know what we were doing, so we went over to uh, to Warner Brothers to Irwin's office, which was a two story high uh, bungalow on the corner of the lot, and it was really like Irwin, bigger than life. We, we were ushered in there, and we were very intimidated, but we managed to introduce ourselves. And I think Irwin had not met young people in a while. I don't uh-huh. all his all his associates. You know, we're, we're rather mature, and uh, he had only one young relative. I don't think he spent much time with young people unless he was directing them or casting them, whatever. So uh, he was kind of staring at us with his eagle eye, and we started our questions about Voyage very respectfully because we wanted to let him know that we were his friend. Uh, he had gotten a lot of bad press over the years, but this was going to be a friendly interview. Mm. So we did, uh, you know, set the tape recorder down and uh, t- did an interview for uh, almost an hour, as I recall. And Irwin gave us some pretty good information, but he was very cagey about some things, mm. uh, especially when it came to things he liked personally. Uh, I asked him, uh, Mr. Allen, uh, what kind of uh, movies do you like? And he said to me, I like successful movies. <laughs> Great answer, right? <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, well, did you like Star Wars? I like successful movies. So uh, yeah. that that was something we discovered early on that he didn't like to share personal aspects of his life with with people. And uh, when Mark Cushman did his books on Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, he was able to interview Al Gale, his cousin, mm. and other people, and Sheila, and get more of a of a perspective on Irwin's personality. But he was kind of like that the entire time I knew him. And uh, from that day that I met him in 1979, I saw him kind of regularly until he passed away in 1991. And uh, and I never really got close to him, but I did have experiences with him. Uh, <laughs> he actually asked me, uh, Mike, would you would you uh, go with me to uh, Best Buy and help me find a, a videotape recorder? Wow. You know, uh, a VCR for his home in Malibu. Erwin mm-hmm. had two homes. One was up in Bel Air and the other one was in Malibu on the beach. So I said, of course. So I rode with him in his limousine out to uh, whatever Best Buy was at the time. It wasn't Best Buy. It was some you know earlier version of that. Sure. And we got the equipment and, uh, and then I took it out to his house in Malibu, drove up there and installed it. And I, I did that a few times for him uh, in different ways. And of course, spent some time with Sheila, who's one of the most lovely women uh, in the world and was also one of the ones who championed Lost in Space and made it possible for the uh, HD versions to be uh, issued. Oh yeah, she she apparently really was dedicated and loyal to the to what Irwin had done, and and that was something that was great that she made that possible. So, and a lovely woman. Uh, I can't say enough good things about her. Uh, but back to Starlog. So, uh, Bill Cotter and I dis- did this initial uh, article on Voyage to the, to the Bottom of the Sea. Now our editors. Uh, kind of applied a, a title that Irwin didn't like to it, uh, The Rise and Fall Voyage, something like that. And uh, we said to him, well, you know, Irwin, we weren't responsible for that. And uh, he seemed to accept that. And so over the next few years, I was able to interview him again several times. But that also opened the door to interviewing and meeting other people from the cast and crew. In fact, when I moved out here to Los Angeles, 
a friend of mine was a comedian at the comedy store in uh, 1977 and that was the hotbed of of new comics you know all the new guys were there letterman jay leno mm. robin williams all these guys were there my friend called me from the comedy store one night and said hey you know you like lost in space don't you bill Mooney's down here and so i said really i i scampered over there and he introduced me to bill and bill was very kind uh, i think he was still a little bit stung from the typecasting of lost in space that people only thought of him in that, those terms but nevertheless he took my questions and we became became casual friends you know i'd see him here or there and then i interviewed him for the magazine and then of course i've done numerous panels and those lost in space specials with bill so i'm always amazed when i think about the little boy who was back in florida watching the show and just loved the cast members and all that that i would get to speak to bill and actually he would recognize my face when i came uh, mm. and, and talked to him so that was one of the magical things about yep. Starlog is that it allowed me to meet so many people in the industry that I had watched their names, their credits when I was growing up, and, and then talk to them and learn what they had uh, experienced at the time. Well, it's interesting reading your article with Billy Mummy, which I believe you did in 1981. I really got a sense from reading that the character of Will Robinson, he might have been stung at being typecast, but it, he seemed to really still care about that character. And he was already talking then about, you know, hopefully in 1981 doing a follow-up or a movie or something like that, which I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yes, uh, I think he was starting to turn around his perception. But remember that this is 1981 before IMDb and other uh, uh, movie digital archives. Mm. I my, I'm, Myself, I'm always amazed when Bill... Uh, on Facebook, will put up a picture of a, of a movie or TV show he was in, and you go, he was in that too? Mm -hmm. So he, he really did a lot before Lost in Space, and he did a lot afterwards. And I think he was rightly concerned that he be remembered for the other things that he had done, and also for his musicianship. Absolutely. Uh, and, and his partnership uh, in Barnes and Barnes and other things to this day. So we must not pigeonhole Bill Mooney. He is a, he is a multi-talented person. Uh, his acting was just one part of his life, and Lost in Space was just three years of his life. But that was the one that seems to have uh, have lingered all these years. Yeah. Well, as a child actor, he was in some very iconic episodes of The Twilight Zone and and to other shows. And so he's he definitely has a, a larger legacy than Lost in Space. But of course. Lost in Space is one of the things that uh, he'll always be remembered for. Another person that you got to interview, which I thought was great, because I haven't seen too many interviews with like, Guy Williams. You wrote an article with him in 1987. I'm not sure how many times he was interviewed after that, because he left the country for a while. And that was a very, very interesting article. I, I think that might have been his last interview, and it wasn't easy. Guy Williams lived out of the country most of the year. Uh, he was a very big celebrity down mm. in Buenos Aires because they ran Zorro down there. So he was like, wow, everywhere. He was treated like royalty down there. So he, he moved down there for uh, a greater part of the year. He had come back into town because his daughter, Tony, was getting married. Ah. And I, I, I think I set up the interview through Tony or uh, her brother, Guy Jr. I said, can I come over and interview him? Oh, no, he's too busy. You'll have to do it on the phone. I tried and tried, and, 
you know, I just couldn't get it going. I had to do the interview on the phone. So I didn't actually shake Guy's hand. But I did go into the interview with, uh, in 1987. You know, there was a lot to talk about because there was a lot of history and we'd learned a lot about what had happened during the show. Uh, you know, Jonathan Harris's character becoming predominant and Guy's you know, resentment. So, and uh, I was able to use those old TV guide articles as a reference to ask some questions about uh, Lost in Space and Zorro and uh, the movies. But uh, I was primarily concerned with uh, talking to Guy about Lost in Space. And he was very genial and very forthcoming about it. I thought mm. he was uh, pretty honest about it, actually. So uh, I think that's why it turned into a good article. And I was brokenhearted when uh, a couple of years later, if it was even that long, I was driving and I heard on the radio that he had passed away and uh, it kind of hit me hard because this is the late 80s and most of our TV show stars were still alive and uh, so I uh, I was very sad to hear that and I think all the fans out there if Guy had hung around if he if he'd lived he would have been going to these conventions and and everybody would would tell him how much they loved him and he would feel that not only for Lost in Space but for Zorro and I'm sorry that he never got to experience that. Oh, I agree. I agree because there's a lot of love out there for Guy Williams and it's just a shame he didn't get to benefit from those experiences like the the surviving cast members have to this day. So, that uh, was great. I loved that uh, interview and he was very forthcoming in it. You know, too much has been made I think in some quarters about some of the the hurt feelings that occurred on the set when the Dr. Smith, Will, and Robot dynamic sort of overtook the series in the second season. But uh, I think the, uh, Guy Williams and June Lockhart, it seems to me like they, they never let that affect their performances on, on the screen, in my view. Uh, that's true. Uh, no matter what the quality of the script, that cast delivered 100%. They were never slackers at all. They never winked at the audience like they were in on the joke. And that's the proper way to do this kind of show is you got to believe in, in what you're doing and uh, let Batman do the really campy stuff that mm. you you act straight, uh, although we all know that the Batman did affect Lost in Space. And the other thing that I think affected Lost in Space was Irwin at one point had four shows going on all at the same time. He had Voyage, Lost in Space, Time Tunnel, and Land of the Giants. Mm all going on at the same time, and Irwin used the same writers for all those shows. He eventually started bringing in some more writers. When you're writing that many shows, uh, you tend to burn out, and I think that's what happened. In fact, one of the more prolific Lost in Space writers was Peter Packer, and uh, he's the one that did that third season episode, The Great Vegetable Rebellion. Right. Because as he told Jonathan, I just didn't have another damned idea in my head. Uh, yes. And and some of his episodes are, abs from especially the first season, are absolutely brilliant. And it just shows you, you can get burned out after a while. So it's probably would have been better if they hadn't leaned on the same guys quite as heavily as they did. But Irwin, it is amazing how prolific he was. And to have that many shows on TV at the same time is unbelievable. Well, one of the key ingredients to any series, particularly a science fiction series, is to have a good story editor. The story editor on Lost in Space, Tony Wilson, was a good writer on his own, but I think he tended to take things too casually later on uh, and let things slide by. And as we learned from Mark Cushman's book, which are uh, the best reference for all this Lost in Space trivia and production, is that uh, Irwin actually had quite a say in the scripts, as did CBS. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early parts, uh, she and Winselberg, who had written the pilot, also wrote some of the regular series episodes. I think he was still kind of in the loop 
in the early uh, episodes. And then there's one guy that I need to mention who was probably an unsung hero, and everybody forgets he was on the show, and that was Mr. Buck Houghton. Yes. And Buck Buck Houghton was the uh, primary producer of the original Twilight Zone. And CBS put him on Lost in Space because I think it was their first experience with Irwin and they wanted to make sure they had somebody they could trust on the show. So Buck was actually a kind of a producer on the show, and I'm sure he had some input into story. And uh, I met Buck years and years later, and I asked him about that experience. And he says, well, you know, on an Irwin Allen show, there's only one producer, and that's Irwin. And mm. uh I, I did my thing for a few episodes, and they were up and running, and then he left the show. Of course, nowadays, if you look at the credits of any show, there's 10 producers, right. <laughs> writers. Uh, so that's not necessarily the, the thing. But Buck Houghton, I think, brought a real uh, you know, gravitas to Lost in Space. And if you look at the first dozen episodes, he never got an on-screen credit, uh, to my knowledge, but he was acknowledged as working on the show. That's some of the favorite Lost in Space episodes that the fans love was the ones he worked on yes yeah well that's a point that uh, mark cushman makes in his book too you could tell there was a definite change in direction um, that coincided with the uh, buck houghton leaving so it is kind of interesting how the show evolved and it's a topic of a lot of conversation and i think there were a lot of forces involved in it you know you mentioned shimon winselberg uh, who wrote the pilot script along with erwin allen and then the reluctant stowaway and then i think he did some story outlines for the first few episodes that was and, a great and he, he wrote invaders from the fifth dimension yes another another great episode what did you uh, you did an article with him and i thought that was very fascinating he also seemed pretty uh, fair-minded about his experience with working on lost in space even though i guess erwin and him had a little bit of a falling out and uh, he went on to do some other projects and everything what did, what did you take away from from talking to him all the interviews i did for Lost in Space and Voyage and everything else occurred years after the show was produced. Uh, my first Starlog article, which was on Voyage with, with Bill Cotter, was in 1979. And then, like you noted, uh, in 81, I did Bill Moomy, and then I think the next year, Jonathan, and then the next year, uh, Marta Kristen, and so forth. So they had perspective at that time. Uh, particularly uh, in in their careers and the time they had worked in network television, which is a, a jungle anyway. And Shimon was uh, a very gentle man. Uh, he was one of the highest regarded uh, CBS and NBC and ABC approved writers of network shows at the time. And so uh, to get him on a show like Lost in Space was actually considered kind of a coup for mm. Irwin uh, because mm. he was such a highly regarded writer. And I had met Shimon because I did some work for the Jewish Federation here in Los Angeles, I, uh, and he was a member. And so that's how I met Shimon, and I went over to his house and uh, spent some time with him and his wife. And uh, he was a delightful, uh, erudite man who was very thoughtful. Shimon was very circumspect about the time he'd spent working in network television because he knew the deal. It was commercial, and it had to be popular, and it had to be hopefully good, too. And so he really did strive for all those things. But he was working in Irwin Allen's sandbox, and he realized what it was, even though for the reluctant stowaway, he did put his pen name on it, S. Bar David, mm. which means Shimon, son of David. His father's name was David. But he regarded it as a, a very interesting time in his life, and he was grateful to Irwin for the opportunities. Yes. 
Yeah. Well, that's the way it came off for sure. So I, I enjoyed reading that article. Now, another one that you did that I thought was great, this was, I think it was all in one issue of Starlog. You had a feature on Bob Kinoshita, the designer of the robot, Bob May, who, of course, was the performer inside the costume, and voice actor Dick Tufeld. That was like the trifecta. Uh, this was 1982, and it, it was just great to have all of those things put together in, in one spot. Now, that had to be very fascinating. I, I was very excited to do that because, uh, first of all, let's start with Dick Tufeld. Dick Tufeld, I was well aware of from my childhood because he was uh, the announcer on just about everything, including the variety show The Hollywood Palace. Mm. And he, at the end of every uh, Hollywood Palace, he would say, for the Hollywood Palace, this is Dick Tufeld speaking. And to me, that became show business. Mm. That was, wow, Dick Tufeld is show business. So when I learned later on that he was the voice of the robot and I'm living out in Los Angeles and I want to do this article covering all aspects of the robot, it was pretty easy to get a hold of Dick. Uh, I worked in the industry at the time. I don't remember how exactly I made the connection, but it wasn't hard. Sure. And uh, and here I met Dick, and again, you never know what you're going to get coming into these articles, uh, in, into these interviews, because, uh, geez, I hope this person's nice, oh, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And Dick Tufeld was another person like Shimon. He was very educated, very sophisticated, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him. I, I was casual friends with him the rest of his life, and his uh, and his and his wonderful wife, Anita, too. She was just great. And uh, Dick was very forthcoming and candid and uh, just a wonderful guy to be around. Well, I have, then, to, I have to ask, though, he has such a distinctive voice when, you know, I don't know that I've ever heard an interview with him to come to think of it, but his voice is so distinctive. I mean, you recognize it instantly. When you're casually talking to him, can you tell it's Dick Tufeld, the announcer? Yes, he, he does speak in regular tones, but he does have that intonation of, uh, of Dick Tufeld. So mm. yes, yes, very much so. And by the way, later in his life, Dick had some problems with a vocal cord. Uh, I forget what happened medically, but they had to, to move one of his vocal cords over to substitute for a, a vocal cord that was damaged. And for a while there, he couldn't talk. Oh. But the operation was successful, and he managed to be able to talk again and do some announcing, which was great because we almost lost that voice totally. And then I met Bob May. At the time, Bob was a coach for the Pop Warner uh, football uh, teams around the country, and he hadn't done anything in quite a while show business-wise. But yet I found out he had a wonderful show business history. His family was in vaudeville, and he was practically born in a, in a trunk in a theater mm. and had a wonderful history. And he came come out to Hollywood and been in some pretty big movies, sitcoms like the Dobie Gillis Show. But uh, – uh, he was uh, auditioning for work on a remake of Stagecoach uh, when he got the call from Irwin's office to come over. Now, Bob had done a cameo on Voyage a few months earlier, and how they remembered him, I'm not sure. But Irwin had a great casting director. Irwin must have said to him, ah, we need somebody a little bit on the short side, but he has to be strong you know, to work this costume that Bob Kinoshita's uh, got completed. And so I think that's how how the connection was made to have Bob come in and try out for the job. Uh, but here's another guy that uh, is supremely talented and uh, used it to create a character out of that robot because Irwin told him that, you know, he wanted him to take the robot and do something with it. Mm. And Bob, Bob was a talented mime and puppeteer. 
and uh, created that wonderful character uh, combined with Dick Tufeld's voice and, and the writing made him almost the star of the show. So everybody I met along the way with Lost in Space was incredibly talented. Irwin was lucky that all those forces came together at the same time. Uh, and let's mention Bob Kinoshita, who was the third part of that article. Uh, Bob, uh, I found through the produ uh, Production Designers Guild. And again, a very humble man, very intelligent. He had an incredible string of credits, including Forbidden Planet, which we all know he uh, mm -hmm. he took all those various uh, uh, thoughts about Robbie and combined them and made Robbie the robot. Uh, so uh, that alone, if he just had that, that would have been a fantastic career. Uh, but he, he did many other things and, and lost in space. Again, an intelligent, uh, articulate man. Everybody I met that was associated with the program had amazing talents. And uh, uh, again, Irwin, when, when he hired people, I think he had a nose for picking out talent because he always seemed to surround himself with the top uh, talent, uh, the costume designer, Paul Zestunevich, uh, his cameraman, Winton Hoke, uh, all the other people. Uh, I, I think the only place he kind of fell down there sometimes was in the story editor. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, it was nice that Robert Kinoshita got, he got screen credits, unlike Bob May, or, and I don't even think Dick Tufeld got screen credit, but you relate a story about... The, TV guy. Ah. Irwin was kind of cagey about the fact that there was a performer in the costume early on in the series, but uh, TV Guide actually spilled that? Yes. And also, Irwin was upset uh, the TV Guide had done an article showing the miniatures from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Uh, you may remember the pictures of David Hedison out in the moat holding up one of the models and yes. so forth. How Irwin didn't know about that, I'm not sure, but he was upset that some of the magic had been revealed. Of course, this was in the years before everybody wanted to know how all of this was done. Uh, I guess Starlog Magazine kind of uh, lit the flame on people's mm. interest in behind-the-scenes stuff. But back in the 1965-66, people just accepted, oh, that's a show. I, I don't know that this is uh, this Jupiter 2 crashing is a four-foot miniature in Red Rock Canyon or mm. that the chariot was real and was taken out to Trona Pinnacles and filmed. I don't know that they really cared about that. People like me cared about it because I, I was uh, very interested in how the show was produced. Produced. I was fascinated by that and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and, and those other shows. And from what I gather, uh, a fair number of other baby boomer males like me were also very interested in that. Uh, if you're on Facebook and you're on some of these Lost in Space groups, uh, you'll see people post uh, drawings that they did uh, when the show was on the air, like Mark DeRay and Ron Gross and even Kevin Burns have, uh, have posted some of the drawings they did back then, showing how interested they were in the technology and the sets and the costumes. Well, you know, that's something I wanted to kind of get into with you because you've been a Lost in Space fan uh, going back to the very beginning, but uh, social media really has changed a lot for the fans, hasn't it? I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because if you look at the timeline from the show went on the air till now, if you were a fan, you could you could watch it once a week. There was no uh, VCRs back then in 1965. If you missed that episode, you had to wait for reruns, or they might not rerun it, and you would never see that episode again until your local station started carrying it in syndication. Then you might have a good shot at uh, as watching it. And occasionally there were articles in TV Guide or in the newspaper. The relationship between the show and the fans 
was very slim. The only way you could really reach out to a show was to write them a letter and send it to 20th Century Fox or CBS. And usually you'd get a postcard or something in reply, and that was about it. So if you take that while the show was on the air and then it goes into reruns, there's no real fan club for the show at that point. The relationship of you to the show kind of tapers off. And plus, you know, if you're like me, you're getting older, you're in college, you're Mm. dating, you're starting a career, you're raising a family. So I'd say for a good number of years, Lost in Space was not particularly a uh, a topic that was on my front burner. When I got into the Starlog era, yes, it did it did come back, but even so, only sporadically because again, raising a family, job, and all that. Sure. When social media came about, in uh, I think the internet really kicked in around 1995, but it took a few years to figure out what the hell was was all about. But when Facebook came about things really took a leap. And I belong to at least four Lost in Space Facebook uh, pages. Mm -hmm. I'm an admin for other Facebook pages, uh, Supercar and Fireball XL5. Every day, multiple times a day, the topic of Lost in Space appears on Facebook. People uh, are just posting, gee, I really like this episode or that episode. But then again, other people are posting stuff that's rare and you've never seen before. There's a guy who uh, has a Lost in Space fan uh, page called Ron Nastrum. And he takes the Blu-rays and creates uh, screen captures Mm. so that you can see an entire episode in screen captures. And it's usually 150 pictures. And he selects them, and every one of them is is like a piece of art. The show was so well photographed. Every one of his screen captures is like, wow, they really put a lot of work into this show. So he's putting that up. Other people are putting publicity stills up or uh, rare articles. And so now Lost in Space and other shows are, are like on my mind every day for months at a time. Every day I see multiple postings about Lost in Space. So again, at the beginning, you know, fan of the show, once a week, CBS, and then a long fallow period. And then, you know, oh, I'm interested again. I'm writing for Starlog, mm-hmm. uh, meeting Irwin Allen and Bill Moomy. And then the social media uh, kind of leveled the playing field. I used to consider myself one of the you know, top Lost in Space and Voyage experts and Jerry Anderson experts in the country. But now there's quite a few other people, uh, and also due to Mark Cushman's book, if you read those, uh, everybody's an expert on the show nowadays, and there's multiple postings from multiple uh, Facebook pages every day. So it's kind of like fandom wrapped around itself and became even more important to the show now than it was when the show was on the air. And I find that very interesting, that we're much more involved with these shows 50 years after their premiere than we were at the time that they were on the network. It's very fascinating, and I was blown away when I started doing some research myself on Facebook. I had not been a big Facebook person up until a couple of years ago. My wife, my kids, they all have pages. But when I started thinking about doing this podcast, I said, well, there's got to be somebody that maybe has a, a fan page on Facebook for Lost in Space. And I was blown away. There's, there's got to be you know, almost a dozen different ones, and they all are bringing information to light that we could not have possibly known back in the day. And it's great that the fans get a chance to share these things with other fans. And uh, you know, you can learn. You can learn a lot. You can see some great shots, uh, photographs, diagrams, uh, original pieces of uh, artifacts from the show, props, and things like that. It is just it's just really interesting. Well, yeah. one of the guys who was a, a, an early adapter, who was an early Facebook poster and has the original Lost in Space, 
classic series sites, and that's Ray Duchek. Yes. And I met Ray back in the 80s when he was a, a convention promoter, and he still is doing that. But uh, he has like several dozen Facebook pages for Lost in Space and other movies and TV shows. I tend to stick with him uh, because he was the first. But there there are many other ones uh, out there. So, uh, But uh, Ray's, Ray's uh, site is, I think, terrific. I agree with you. Ray's sites are terrific. But I want to ask you a couple more things about Starlog, and then I've got some, some non-Starlog-related questions to you ask betcha. you. You got to interview Marta Kristen, and she that was a great article. I think that was in 1988, and she just seemed like a very lovely person. Then, of course, you also did the article on Jonathan Harris, who I was kind of saving for last. Uh, did you get to know him as well, or was this just a... Uh, one-off opportunity to interview him. Yes, I did get to know him because he lives out here in Los Angeles or lived out here in Los Angeles and uh, actually spent a fair amount of time with him, not just interviewing him, but we just go out to lunch mm. or, uh, you know, have a phone call. Uh, uh, he was, I guess, one of the most erudite people and one of the most uh, uh, sharing people. He, he, he didn't hold anything back. Uh, if, if he liked you and you liked him, uh, he he would not hold back at all. And most of the things <laughs> he was talking about in show business, you know, I couldn't use in, in the articles and all that. But uh, he was such an experienced actor and a, a man of the world and a connoisseur. Uh, it, it was it was magic to be with him. And even many years after the show ended, like when we go out to lunch in the early to mid 90s, uh, people still recognized him and came up. Uh, you know, he wasn't the 50-year-old uh, Jonathan Harris. He was like the 80-something-year-old uh, Jonathan Harris. But he was still a fan uh, favorite wherever we went. Well, he seemed to really embrace the role of, and the character of Dr. Smith even after the show ended. It, he didn't shy away from it. It seemed like there's a lot of Jonathan Harris, not the actor, but the person. It seems that way when I've seen him interviewed. Was his charisma off-camera as evident uh, as it was on-camera? Yes, definitely. Uh, when he was there, he was uh, he owned the room, mm. uh, and uh, he walked in, and uh, just a few words from him, oh, it's Jonathan, oh my goodness, <laughs> uh, and that's interesting because he started off uh, rather humble beginnings in the New York City area. His he was a pharmacist earlier in his life, and at some point, he decided to uh, to join the theater. Mm. And he was a theatrical person, and uh, theatrical people know how to command a room. Yes. And and uh, he certainly did. But he was also, uh, he wasn't somebody who took up all the air in the room. If you had something to say, he would actually listen to you. Mm. Uh, some, some people who are narcissist personalities, it's all about me, all about me. But uh, no, he, 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 you could have a conversation with him. Nice. And and he'd ask you what you were doing, uh, which I which I always appreciated. That's great. That's great. The 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 one last thing I want to touch on with Starlog is uh, in all those interviews, there seemed to be a great theme of the people, the actors, the cast members. They still had high regard for each other. And the one thing I would say that was kind of a disappointment that came up was the way that the show got canceled. It it, it was a little bit of a. a a disappointment the way that was done and handled. Did uh, did did you get to talk to them about that at all? Uh, at the time, we didn't really learn about that till after I had done those interviews, uh, and the truth kind of came out uh, that CBS uh, was was interested in renewing the show, but they wanted to cut the license fee, mm. and Irwin was already uh, in deficit financing, and this means that you're producing the show uh, for more than the network is paying for it. Right now. When you do that, 
most TV shows back in the day were done that way, and they figured they'd make their money back in syndication, which is kind of a dicey uh, business model, but that's the way it was back then. So they were losing money on just about every Lost in Space show 20th Century Fox was back then. But uh, they were going to make it back in syndication, but you never can count on that. A show might go off into syndication and flop. But all of Irwin's shows always had long runs in syndication. In fact, they're still in syndication to this day. But in, in the spring of 1968, Everybody thinks they're renewed, uh, they're going to come back, they're going to take a few months off. And CBS wants to cut the budget, Irwin's fighting the battle behind the scenes with them. And I think Fox, had they been a little smarter, would have said, okay, we'll make up for the difference so that the quality of the show isn't hurt and that'll give us a better syndication package. They didn't think so well in those terms in those days. And so uh, eventually a mutual decision was made, well, you can't pay us enough for the for the show, so you know we're going to have to pull it from... Uh, our production schedule, and therefore it's off the CBS schedule. I'm sure you're enjoying this fascinating interview with television historian, production pro, and author Mike Clark as much as I am. The thing I enjoy about speaking with Mike is he's not just an authority on the subject of Lost in Space, he's also a fan, and that passion really shines through when you listen to him. He's got more to share about Lost in Space, Erwin Allen, and much, much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Lost in Space guru, Mr. Mike Clark. There was another CBS show that had a similar problem to Lost in Space's cancellation, and that was Gilligan's Island. And Gilligan's Island and Lost in Space, I thought, had some crossover similarities. They first their first year was in black and white. Second and third year were in color. But uh, Gilligan's Island was going to be renewed for the fourth season and was placed on the schedule. Unfortunately, uh, it knocked Gunsmoke off the schedule. And the wife of the head of CBS was a big fan of Gunsmoke and put the kibosh on that. <laughs> Gunsmoke goes back into the schedule and Gilligan's Island gets canceled. Now, the smart thing to do would have been to keep filming for the fourth season of Gilligan's Island, let the new season start, see what fails, and then plug Gilligan back into there because it was a popular show. But the networks didn't think in terms of that back then. And the only show that the fans were able to save at the time was Star Trek. Yeah. And and it's a good point, too, because actually, according to Mark Cushman's book, you know, Lost in Space and I'm sure Gilligan's Island was a similar situation. They were still doing quite well in their ratings in that the season right before they got canceled. So, yeah, I guess we're, we're fortunate we got as much Lost in Space as we as we have. And one of the great things that's happened in addition to social media is we now have those wonderful Blu-rays, you know, thanks to Sheila Matthews and Kevin Burns, who I, I know that you know well, they were able to get that done back in 2015. I think that was for the 50th anniversary of the show. And those are just absolutely great. And there's a tie-in with you because you're actually... You're like the facilitator, I guess I'd say, for those special cast commentaries that are the special features on there. Talk about your relationship with Kevin Burns and and some of the things that he's involved you in with Lost in Space. Well, Kevin Burns is like the savior of Lost in Space. He's like an angel that came down to to save that show because Kevin was originally a TV uh, executive in Boston who made the move out here and was hired at 20th Century Fox because I think they recognized his executive capability. And among the things he was interested in was Lost in Space. He was a diehard fan. And so as his career went along uh, at 20th Century Fox, he uh, found the robot in storage and had it restored. And he 
started uh, having events and panels. Like, for instance, uh, when the movie came out in 1998, when the movie came out in 1998, uh, Kevin and Gary Summers organized the Lost in Space Return to Earth convention, which was fantastic. I had one of the best panels ever there. Ah. Uh, listen, listen to who was on this panel. Uh, Bill Krieber, the original production designer. Wow. Gene Polito, the first season cameraman. Mm. Harry Harris, one of the more uh, common and prolific directors of Irwin uh, shows. And Sutton Rowley, who directed that wonderful episode, Wish Upon a Star and the Antimatter Man and One of Our Dogs is Missing. So that's one of the coolest panels I've ever had. And to get Bill Krieber, the original production designer of the pilot, on there was quite a coup. I didn't realize at the time that he would be so hard to get a hold of again, or else I would have, <laughs> I would have mm. talked to him a lot longer. But uh, Bill is a genius, and again, I mentioned earlier how Irwin always had the most talented people with him. Right. And Bill Krieber supplied the look for the for the pilot, and then Bob Kinoshita took over after that. But the basic look of the show and the genius design of the spaceship that was bill krieber hmm. it's beautiful yeah and all those people are great that you mentioned i think gene polito is is a little bit unsung that could because the cinematography for the first se- that's what we're doing right now we're about a third of the way through reviewing the first season and the camera work the black and white photography is absolutely stunning of course it depends a little bit on who's directing it sutton raleigh was a great director and i love the episodes that you mentioned there so kevin burns got you into doing these panels and i understand you just recently did another Lost in Space panel. We're recording this in June of 2018, but I was very disappointed I couldn't come to that. That was the Alien Con in June of 2018, correct? That's correct. And it was very historic because it was the first panel where we had two Will Robinsons and two Pennies on the panel. Mm. So we had the classic series. We had Angela Cartwright and Bill Moomy. And from the new Netflix series, we had Maxwell Jenkins and Mina Sundwall. Ah. And so first time for them on the panel. We also had a couple of the writers. Uh, in fact, I shouldn't just say writers. They were the creators of the new show. And uh, their names are Matt Suzama and Burke Sharpless. Mm. They were on the panel. And then we had Kevin Burns and John Jashney. Uh, we had uh, Marta Kristen and Mark Goddard. And, uh, and again, a Kevin Burns. So it was quite a, a heavy-duty panel. That's 10 people to be interviewed, and they cut our, sh- our time short. We were supposed to have an hour. We only had 45 minutes. So we had to kind of rush through it. But I got to tell you, uh, it was the first time I had met Max and uh, Mina, the new cast members. And they are fantastic. That Max is uh, an incredible young man with uh, just the most cheerful demeanor and a natural talent I learned from him on that panel that he had never had an acting lesson. Wow. What he, what, uh, yeah, and what he's doing on The New Lost in Space is incredible. And Mina, too, uh, how she's interpreting the Penny character and, uh, and bringing it uh, to life is incredible. So I was so happy to meet those people. And I also met Max's mother because one of the things I've always appreciated about these stars that are on our panels and do all these conventions and things, they have significant others, wives or husbands, that support what they do and share these celebrities with the fans. And I know it's not always easy for them because sometimes, uh, more often than not, you know, the person who comes up and is starry-eyed because Bill Moomy's here doesn't realize that Eileen is standing right next to him. Right. And so I, I always try and mention that uh, thank you to the, to the spouses of our stars because they're the ones who share them with the public. They share them, and they're having to do a lot to support the star as well. That is, you know, that's the side of the business that uh, 
fans don't appreciate is the demands that are put on them. But it's it had to be very cool to do that. And tell me about doing those cast commentaries for the Blu-rays. Those are really fascinating. You get a lot of inside information on those. Yeah, so that was kind of an intimidating project because when Kevin asked me to be part of that, I couldn't believe that I was going to be fortunate enough to sit with these original cast members and talk about these episodes. But the episodes are also, uh, what, 51 minutes in length? So that's a lot of content to fill. And of course, I know a lot of trivia about the show and I like pointing out things. And the trick is, is for me not to get too involved and let the cast breathe. When they have something to say, make sure that they get to say it. And then I fill in the blanks. Uh, Like, for instance, in the uh, original pilot that we did the commentary for, they aren't even on screen till, what, about two and a half, three minutes into the show. Yeah. So. So I took over that. I said, here's Erwin Allen's uh, crane shot. And we like that this set is all smoke and mirrors done by Bill Creeper. It's basically just the mill, a 20th century fox dressed up with Burroughs computers and a little bit of lighting and Winton Hoax doing wonderful camera work. And then when they finally entered the scene, then they were able to contribute more. And seeing these episodes for the first time in Blu-ray and seeing every little grain of film that's in there is to me fascinating because often the capture process for the Blu-ray showed more than we had ever seen before because it captured the entire frame. And then it was zoomed in just a little bit because very often in the frame you'd see microphone booms or you'd see off the set. So that was not the way it was originally seen. In the original telecasts back in the 60s, our TV sets cut off about 15 or 20 percent all around the image, Mm. as opposed to nowadays when our flat screens show every bit of the image. So it was fascinating to be able to see the makeup stains on the shirt collars (laughs) and to be able to see every little dent and screw hole in the robot that we'd never seen before. And uh, I mentioned earlier this guy, Ron uh, Nastrum, who uh, does the frame grabs, using the Blu-ray, he actually discovered something that everybody had missed for the past 50 years. Uh, In the episode, The Girl from the Green Dimension, it was the only time that the 10-foot model of the Jupiter II was used, to our knowledge, and it was placed off in the background so that it would appear that the set in the foreground was like within walking range of the ship. But the ship was back there. It was kind of behind a couple of plants. It was very subtle. But Ron, using the Blu-rays, saw that and and made the discovery, and so that was things like that caused quite a lot of excitement in our they really in our, do. Ner- in our nerdy uh, Lost in Space uh, fan group. Oh yeah, well that is I'm going to have to look for that. We haven't gotten that far reviewing that uh, episode yet, but I'm going to have to look for that ten foot because that was a bit of folk- folklore for a long time. Did it really exist? Was it ever used? So that's actually in the Girl from the Green Dimension. I'm going to have to look for that one. Well, I knew it existed because I know the guy who had it for many years. Um, he was a prop guy, and he wasn't getting around to restoring it. So he finally sold it, and uh, this person back on the East Coast is uh, is going to be restoring it. Now, unlike the Chariot, you know, the original Chariot, uh, after it was used at 20th Century Fox, ended up being sent, sent to the mountains and was used to transport skiers and equipment. Mm. And when it was found, it was in quite bad shape. There a few pictures up on the website showing that all the windows were broken and the top was removed. A person in the Los Angeles area bought it back in the 80s with the intention of restoring it. But here we are all these years later and no restoration. So luckily, uh, this fellow back on the East Coast built a full-size replica of the chariot that uh, probably is better than the original. Yes, I've seen pictures of that. I, I know he's been to a few conventions on the East Coast. It must be expensive to take that thing to a convention, but I'd love to get a chance to see that in person because it looks absolutely well, beautiful. 
he he is on the east coast so i doubt we'll be seeing it on the west coast yeah probably not well, that had to be a fun experience. I, th- I have to say that on the cast commentaries, you did an admirable job of keeping people on t- on task. If there were a few times when, and that's natural, uh, that people, you know, the, the guys would start talking about one particular thing and sort of get off topic. And you were, you did a nice job of keeping everybody focused on what's going well, on there. But it was well, great. Well, thank you for that. And one of the things that I try to do in the commentaries is keep everybody current because when I've seen other commentaries in movies uh, in the past, uh, they would get way behind what was happening on screen. And that irritated me a lot. So I wanted to try and keep current so that if something happened on screen, we could refer to it right there and not refer to it three minutes after it happened. So that was one of my challenges and also to, you know, allow the, the cast members to say whatever they wanted to say. Now, that being said, we did run into a problem with the uh, Phantom family uh, because once you get about 15 minutes into the show, there are no new sets. They just kept going back and forth between the Jupiter and, and the uh, set where the alien was in the cave. Mm-hmm. And we kind of were running out of things to say. So uh, at that point, we're getting uh, nitpicky. That was towards the end of the day, too. Uh, uh, and so when you're about five or six episodes in, you start getting a little, you know, uh, a little yeah. tired. Yeah. And, and then the Antimatter Man, which is uh, one of my favorite episodes, uh, there's a lot of padding in that episode where the camera is just tracking back and forth as they go between the worlds. They're walking amongst uh, the vegetation and so forth and so on. And that uh, felt like it was a padded episode. So we had a little trouble with that. But we did learn during that episode that Bill Moomy's stand-in, uh, who was a, a young lady, uh, appeared in one of the scenes. And she was all backlit so as to disguise that. But I hadn't realized that before. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is that is a neat little factoid. You know, I want to mention, Mike, you have a great website, and there's a Lost in Space tie-in here for sure, but it's called Big13, I think, .com. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yes, and it's a, basically a tribute to the television station in uh, the Tampa Bay area. I think it was the CBS affiliate. That's and, correct. And you actually worked there, and it, you had gone to see the station as a child, and that set you on the road to uh, being in the industry. The website is fascinating and you have all kinds of things it's but one of the articles i looked at recently on there is you did a whole article on the subject of colorization of black and white uh, older yes. black and white television and it's a really fast and i think kevin burns is quoted in it because you l- use yes. lost in space as one of the examples you want to share a little bit with our audience about the uh, what you put out there on colorization and tell us tell us maybe where you stand on it there are a few things that get people more riled up than the topic of colorization Mm-hmm. I, I almost equate it to the red-blue split in the country because that's also <laughs> colorization, isn't it? In a way, so, yeah. Uh, I was always seeing these comments on Facebook posts about how horrible uh, colorization is, and I don't necessarily believe that. I think it depends upon the talents of the people involved. Uh, for instance, uh, the I Love Lucy episodes, particularly the one with Superman, I thought was excellent. The Dick Van Dyke shows that I'd seen colorized were excellent. Bewitched and uh, I Dream of Genie, excellent colorization jobs. So I wanted to do some research and and kind of bring everybody up to speed on what colorization is, how far it's come, and what good colorization means these days. And that means having an art director who cares and who who knows how to apply a delicate touch. Everybody complains that colorization 
destroys the original intent of the uh, cinematographer or the uh, director or whatever. But my uh, article was about colorizing classic TV series, ones that were on the cusp, the ones that started off in black and white and went to color like Lost in Space and Voyage, uh, the Wild Wild West, Mm -hmm. and uh, even the adventures of Superman. First two seasons of Superman were in black and white and then they went to color. I Love Lucy never went to color until that show ended and she started a show on CBS that went to color. But I felt if if they had had the, the budget or the wherewithal that the shows would have been done in color from the get-go. And I really feel that way about Lost in Space because if you look at the costumes that Paul Zastupnovich designed for the first season, have you ever seen more colorful costumes than that? Oh, yeah. They're very colorful. I was surprised when I first saw, you know, there were some period color photographs taken of the cast members in the costumes, and they're very bright colored. Right. And so you say, well, geez, why didn't they do the show in color the first year? Well, CBS had X amount of dollars. Uh, Irwin was informed and Fox was informed that it would cost this much more to do it in color. I wish they'd had the faith to do it in color. They shot the special effects, the crash of the uh, Jupiter 2, which uh, in the pilot was called the Gemini 12, and the uh, Trona of Pinnacles chariot footage in color. Right. But uh, but unfortunately, the rest of it was in black and white. I think if they had had the money, they would have shot it in color, and I think Paul Zestutnovich probably thought they were going to shoot it in color, and that's why he designed those wonderful costumes that in black and white, they all kind of like, hmm, you know, they're kind of like flat. But uh, when you see them in color, you go, oh, my goodness, this would have been a a, a terrific addition to the show. So my point of view is that shows that were on the cusp in black and white and then went to color, they would have shot them in color, I think, if they'd had the budget. The the pilot for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was in color, but the uh, first season was not, I think, for similar reasons. Mm -hmm. So is it really a crime to colorize those shows? And how well can it be done? Again, people were very concerned about the shadows uh, in color. And the art director I talked to, Stan Rutledge and uh, Zach Smothers, were both expert at explaining that when we colorize something, we don't need to add color to the shadows unless it's a very subtle thing. We, we want the shadows to pop. And so, therefore, uh, properly done uh, colorization can be a wonderful thing. And it can bring the show to a whole new audience because some of these millennials, I don't know how your kids are, but uh, my kids, they really don't like to watch black and white. I think you're right. There is a little bit of youthful allergy to black and white because they didn't grow up with it, you know? I agree. And I think the technology has improved since the 16 colors they started off with back in the 1980s. And that there could be robotic colorization. I've seen a couple of uh, tests, including the, the reluctant stowaway that were colored by robot and you know they weren't great but they weren't the worst thing i've ever seen either so i think i think colorization will be in the future for lost in space the first season and voyage the first season Uh, other shows maybe the monsters uh the the wild wild west possibly the adventures of superman uh and i think it'll be a good thing for everybody well apparently it is an expensive prospect though to do it Uh, and it seemed like from if i if I remember correctly, Kevin Burns was open to that idea for some of the reasons that you say. The technology's improved, uh, artfully done. It, it can still hold up. To, uh, it's just a matter of the financing of it. And you definitely think we'll see it, though, one day, huh? I definitely do, because the price is coming down and it's becoming more automated. And for anybody who, who's listening to this and would like to learn more about colorization, again, visit Big 13. That's B I G. 
1-3.com. That's my website. And it, and it uh, has colorization on the homepage. And by the way, uh, about that website, which is for WTVT in Tampa, where I once worked, I, I think everybody would enjoy visiting this because every station in the country had their own local kids show host and local things like that. And I, I talk about that on my website. So if you're nostalgic for the era in which we had local kids show hosts and local horror hosts, uh, that's also a place you'll find that content. Oh, it's a, it's a great website. We will definitely be linking to that as well as the Starlog archive webpage in our show notes for this episode, because I do think people would enjoy going on there and checking out that colorization article would be great. As you say, there's a big divide, uh, in, especially in the Lost in Space community on it. This is my perspective anyway, as long as we still have access to the black and white episodes, um, I wouldn't mind seeing them done colorized it, as long as, you know, it's done to the standards that you described previously. After after all, one of the things I've noticed on Facebook is there are two or three fellows on there that actually take black and white photographs and colorize them, and they do a beautiful job with some of them. They're they're absolutely there, gorgeous. There's a British fellow named Pelham Court, yes, P E L H A M, who does I think among the best of them. And every time he puts up one, I gasp because it's so well done and it shows you what the possibilities are for color. It's true. It's very true. I would like to say one other thing. Go ahead. Uh, I'd like to encourage anybody who loves Lost in Space, if they haven't already got the Blu-ray set, you'll find that it's a wonderful investment and it has not only the original uh, episodes on there in high definition, it has hours and hours of bonus materials and information and interviews and just things that make it a wonderful must-have package. And also, I'd recommend Mark Gushman's books, uh, Lost in Space, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. Mark is the guy who did the Star Trek, uh, the use of the Voyages books, and he took the same investigative tools and applied them to Lost in Space. So you'll learn so much about that from that set of books by Mark Cushman. Absolutely, and ditto. And uh, Mark Cushman's book, you should see my copy of volume one. It's all dog-eared and post-it notes. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm going to have to buy, when I get done doing this podcast, I'm going I'm to have to buy another set just to have a pristine <laughs> copy of it, because mine's, pr- mine's like the old uh, Bible with the uh, highlights and everything else in it there. So, Well, um, gosh, we've covered a lot of ground here, Mike, but I I have a lot more questions I could Go keep keep I, going as long as you want. I could ask you. Well, I think I probably will will save something cuz hopefully down the road I can get you back on the show if that's a possibility. Oh, yes, yes. I yeah. uh, I love talking about Lost in Space uh, because that was lightning in a bottle. You know, they tried it a couple of times with pilots and the, and that 1998 movie. And you ask yourself, why was the original? Why does it? Why are we still so uh, uh, loving of that show? And it's a combination of the production. Irwin Allen brought movie-style production to network television and the designs by Bill Krieber and Bob Kinoshita and the costumes by Paul Zastupnovich and the special effects by L.B. Abbott are are one thing, but that cast, that charismatic, wonderful cast, Guy Williams, June Lockhart, Angela Cartwright, Bill Mooney, Marta Kristen, Mark Goddard, Bob May, Dick Tufeld, they all brought their A game to that show. And some people, I think, when they were growing up, uh, and maybe had lost a parent or had difficulty at home, and they looked to people like Guy Williams as a substitute uh, father or an, as an example, uh, like something to, to look up to or June Lockhart. They certainly fulfilled those roles. And Bill Mooney, I cannot say enough about to this day, he's one of the most centered, you know, normal people 
you would ever meet for having had such a fantastic career. That he represents the show is just uh, icing on the cake for all of us. Uh, we couldn't have a better representative out there. Well, I think that's an excellent place for us to leave it now. And if we can get you back on the show again, maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about the new Netflix reboot as well. We'll save something, keep the audience wanting more, as they say in show business there. So <laughs> I will be linking to Big 13. I'll be linking to the Starlog archive in the show notes. I just want to say, Mike Clark, thanks for being so generous with your time joining us on Alpha Control. I love to talk Lost in Space, and it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, getting to hear your stories, and I know it's going to be a treat for our listeners. So thank you so much. You're certainly welcome, Lane, anytime. All right. We'll see you later, sir. That was a blast talking to Mike Clark. I really enjoyed his stories, and he's obviously a real expert on Lost in Space. So let's keep our fingers crossed that he'll make time down the road to come back and share more. In the meantime, we will be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original, Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.